Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, it's once again been a little while between the last Power Hour and this Power Hour, but I can guarantee another one soon since this is the first two-part Power Hour series, and it's on an interesting topic, which is education in general and math education in particular. And hopefully you can see why this is, is interesting to a program like this, since you know math, science, technology are fundamental to the energy industry. And recently I met some interesting people connected to a very interesting project called Reasoning Mind. And uh, I'll tell you the story, and I'll have uh, the CEO of that company, Alex Hachatrian, tell the story in the two interviews, uh, but suffice it to say, I think it's it's really interesting. It'll be interesting to see what all of you think about it, but I, I think this is definitely the kind of project that I want to encourage, and, and anytime someone is trying to create a, a scalable resource that can ultimately benefit a, uh, millions of people uh, with, with better ideas or better concepts or better education, I find that very interesting. So... Stick with us, and I'll be back with Alex Hachatrian on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. It's been a while. As I've told you in recent months, we're not doing weekly anymore, but once in a while, I'm motivated to do the show in particular because I meet someone really interesting who has something to say about something that we usually haven't talked about. And that's what we're going to have today. And maybe even this will be the first two-part power hour. We'll see. Uh, To give you a little background, though, this deals with education. And not energy education, but something that comes really before education, which is education about how to think logically and, more specifically, mathematics education. In my own life, getting a very solid mathematics education, at least I think compared to most people, uh, uh, is just something I, I value so tremendously in terms of developing my ability to think and developing my ability to think about a world that incre- increasingly requires quantitative reasoning. And it's pretty much conventional wisdom, although I don't think very specific or well-thought-out wisdom, that we have a world in which people are not trained in math and science, and in particular math, which is foundational to many, many, if not all, uh, sciences. And this is just a massive kind of problem, because it's a problem that exists in an incredibly distributed way. It exists in schools around the country, it exists in elementary school, and high school, uh, and, and by extension, you know, every further level, in colleges, and adults. And it's one of these things that's almost impossible to, to grapple with because it's such a large-scale thing and the problem exists in curricula, it exists in teachers, and, and just how do you wrap your mind around it? And I don't think anyone is optimistic anymore when some politician comes along and says, 
I'm going to fix education, math, and science education. First of all, they almost never have a decent one themselves. Second of all, it's hard to see how they would change a system. So anyway, getting to today's guest, a couple months ago, I met a really interesting guy from uh, the oil industry who's a major figure in the history of the oil industry named Forrest Hoagland. And he founded a company called EOG Resources, which if you look at uh, American oil producers is now the leading uh, producer of domestic oil in this country. So it's, it's a fantastic uh, success. And I was talking to Forrest. Forrest is 81 and this incredibly energetic guy. And he was telling me about three projects he's working on. One has to do with energy. One has to deal with um, uh, this very elaborate museum project. But then there was one he really lit up about, which was something called Reasoning Mind. And what he claimed to me, although I, I was skeptical, is that they have a way of solving this kind of problem with math education because they have a scalable solution whereby an enormous amount of the education in math, particularly for young people at the ages where education matters most, it, where a huge amount of it can be done via computer and that, that the kids who do this kind of work, who learn from the computer, not only learn as well as they would from a normal teacher classroom situation, but learn far better. And I'll let our guest talk about the details of this. Uh, but that was intriguing to me. Then I spoke to another person who I think was even earlier in the project named Ernie Cockrell, again, someone in the oil industry. Usually when I talk to those guys, we talk energy. But he lit up. He gave me, gave me a fascinating hour and a half lecture on reasoning mind and all these different attributes of it. And it just intrigued me that, wow, if there were really a computer-based, or at least largely computer-based, scalable solution, this is something that you could deploy theoretically without the, you know, the wrong impediments, which we'll talk about. You could deploy very quickly and very quickly get people a math education who would otherwise have no hope of one because there's no scalable solution. So I said to them, well, I will write a story about this. I thought, well, what, this would be a fun thing to talk about. What could I do? I think, well, I'm, I know something about telling stories about, about marketing ideas. So if this is as good as you say, I'll write an article about it. And so I got introduced to the CEO of Reasoning Mind. Um, and more importantly, actually, I got to see a class. And the class was, I'll probably talk about it as we go on, but the class was really, really impressive. I mean, because you had these kids, these were not wealthy kids at all, and they were learning math way better than most people that I grew up with. And when I quizzed them, they were, they were really sharp, and they were having a lot of fun, and they were totally focused on math class. And I had never seen that before uh, in, in my own uh, education, the education of any other kids that I that I knew and even if I'd, I've seen a couple of instances actually in some some great schools I've seen but never anything where it's 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 the computer and where it can be scaled so I decided to meet with the CEO of the company whose name is challenging to pronounce but I think I'm up to it Alex Hachatrian and we talked for about two hours and uh, I think he's just got a fascinating story and and he is the mind behind reasoning mind so I thought you would enjoy hearing his story, his insight, um, and then some of the challenges and obstacles that they're trying to overcome. So, Alex, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, uh, great to be with you here. All right. So I gave my own perspective on Reasoning Mind, but what's, what's your summary of Reasoning Mind and, and what it does? Uh, reasoning Mind is a web-based 
which is computer-based uh, mathematics education program that is used by elementary and middle school students uh, in traditional school environment, uh, which delivers curriculum and very, very engaging way of teaching mathematics uh, and gives teachers a very powerful instrument to deliver a scalable, high-quality mathematics instruction uh, to all of their students. So in essence, that's what it is. It really is not a replacement uh, uh, for teachers. It's just a powerful tool uh, that allows teachers to do a whole lot more than they could do with traditional paper and pencil instruction. Uh, uh, it's on the computers again. It delivers uniformly a very, very high-quality curriculum. It has pretty significant artificial intelligence component built in it, uh, which adjusts to the level of knowledge, ability level uh, of every student, uh, and feeds all these data to teachers so teachers could use this data uh, to further navigate instruction provided for every student and help them where they need help most. Great, and we'll, we'll uh, inevitably go into a lot more detail, but I, I haven't asked you this. I've heard this from some other people, but I think everyone will be interested. What's, what's the story behind this, especially since I know this is an endeavor that you've been pursuing for, uh, for quite a long time, and it's an extensive endeavor. Well, what got you? What got you into this? What motivated you? How did it start? Uh, it, it's very personal, uh, actually. I I had never been an educator by profession. Uh, I was also in the oil industry that you've been talking about. By interestingly enough, that's how I've met Ernie and Forrest that you mentioned in your uh, earlier remarks. Uh, and I was doing uh, IT consulting, petroleum engineering. Uh, uh, I'm geophysicist by, by training, uh, uh, and I have a degree in mathematics and physics and always been fascinated uh, and in love with math and physics. Uh, and that's, these are the subjects that I care very much uh, for, and uh, I wanted to make sure that my son uh, would get a, a very high-quality education in, in math and science because that's what I believe is is very much needed in our uh, uh, knowledge knowledge economy age. And uh, uh, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country with my wife, Julia, and my son, George, uh, 25 years ago. Um, uh, George at that time was five years old, uh, and uh, I was old in my 30s, as well as Julia. Uh, so we had all our education pretty much finished up uh, back in the Soviet Union, uh, but all George's education uh, uh, happened in this country and uh, in front of us. So it was through his eyes that we, we, we've been able to see some of the wonderful things about uh, 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 K-12 education in the United States and some of the issues that, uh, that really bothered us. And mathematics education was one of those. Interestingly enough, uh, we've been looking for a good spot for George and he'd been in various schools, in private and public schools. Uh, and uh, once we actually have seen him uh, struggling with mathematics and struggling specifically with understanding what mathematics is about and developing any kind of an interest to mathematics at various schools, all of a sudden it uh, came to my mind that this might not be a particular school problem. That might be a kind of more systemic type of a problem because he'd been in his first eight years of living in the United States, he'd been to seven different schools. So we had some statistics to see that this is really not kind of contained to a particular school environment. Uh, 
So that's when I started thinking uh, what is happening. Uh, and uh, I think the final trigger for that was when my mom, uh, who uh, who lived with us, uh, she also immigrated a little bit later from from the from the Soviet Union to the States, and who had been a career mathematics teacher. Uh, she tested George's knowledge in mathematics, and uh, and uh, he didn't do well at all uh, to the extent that kind of my my mom almost kind of fell off the chair. Uh, and uh, that was probably the last drop that that indicated to me that some something is wrong, uh, and I developed some interest in seeing uh, whether this could be fixed. Ah, uh, all right, keep going. Good stuff. Uh, so, uh, so that's uh, so that's that was the impetus of the program, uh, and the initial thought was. Uh, well, if George doesn't know mathematics that well, and if he is not showing any interest in mathematics, uh, what we could do about it? Uh, and uh, more often than not, parents uh, are not are not figures of authority with teenagers, and that was when George was about, I think, at eighth grade level, and he was doing, by the way, fine in his class. He was he was uh, uh, bringing home A's, and he was one of the first, if not the first, student in his math class. Uh, and yet he didn't know math, and he had absolutely no interest in math. So luckily enough, one day a letter comes in the mail uh, suggesting that we send George to a mathematics camp, summer math camp. Uh, and uh, we decided to give it a try. He didn't resist. Uh, and we sent him to, to a five-week full immersion math camp on, on the East Coast. Uh, the name of the camp is Math Camp. Dot org. Uh, it's it's an extremely well-run organization uh, where really they're getting kids uh, gathered from around the country and actually a few kids internationally as well. It's primarily American-Canadian camp, but there's some kids that were coming from Europe as well, uh, and they and they have them meet and work hand in hand with professional mathematicians, research mathematicians who are very excited about mathematics as a subject, uh, and uh, and five weeks later. George came back a completely uh, changed person. That was just such a transformative experience that I couldn't even believe my eyes. He was talking only about mathematics. That's what he wanted to do as a career. So I, I couldn't believe what, what happened to him. I thought initially, well, yeah, a kid got excited. So a couple of weeks later, probably uh, he's going to go back to his routine. And that did not happen. He, since that time, he pursued uh, his his interest in mathematics and became a professional mathematician. Oh, so uh, I, I, I was just to step back. I was I was intrigued by one one formulation of yours, which you said he was maybe the top kid in his math class, but he wasn't interested in math, and you said he didn't know math. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, sure. Uh, he he was able to do mathematical operations uh, more or less mechanically more or less just following procedures. Sometimes he was forgetting those procedures, and that's where kind of my mom got very concerned. Uh, but it was really, there was really no depth uh, in what he was doing. He didn't understand that mathematics is, is about the relationship of some uh, abstract objects and constructs like numbers, like geometric figures. To him, it was just something that you manipulate with. Uh, and, uh, and an interesting uh, probably allusion would be to what the equal sign is. Uh, we in this country very often uh, see equal sign as a command to do a mathematics operation. 
So for example, three, three plus five equals. What does that mean? That means that there's something on the left side and you need to do this operation and write an answer on the right side, to the right side of equal sign. So it's, it's a command, it's, it's an operator. Well, in reality, equal sign uh, is a sign that indicates a relationship between two, uh, two uh, arithmetic expressions or algebraic expressions. It has a whole lot more meaning than just try to do something. It's not just an algorithm. Uh, and, and that's what was completely missing. He was able to do math, but he didn't understand there are, that there are certain relationships and certain interesting constructs and wonderful in their beauty constructs, uh, abstract concepts that mathematics is all about. Got it. Okay, continue with the, the story. So we now have George, who's enthusiastic, and then, and then you gave us a peek into the future, actually becomes a professional mathematician. But so the, and this was, this was a result, obviously, he wasn't in reasoning mind at the time. This was uh, this camp. So take it from there, after, a couple weeks after the camp. Yeah, a couple of weeks after the camp, uh, so we uh, uh, we talked at home about that uh, with my wife Julia, uh, and we thought that would be really interesting if we could uh, uh, extend George's experience in a math camp that is uh, available only summertime and only for a very limited number of students. There were only about 100 students, maybe 120 students attending math camp uh, with George if we could extend it to a whole lot more students uh, uh, during the normal school year. Uh, and the thought was that was driving that was that we probably have a whole lot more uh, kids like George in this country uh, that are really good at math, uh, that can discover that math can be fun and interesting uh, and possibly even a career for them or math-related disciplines like, well, uh, uh, technology or science or physics or biology uh, or engineering for that matter, uh, but who never discovered that because uh, uh, this side of mathematics uh, has never been revealed to them, has never been shown to them. And maybe we could do an online technology-based math camp or a kind of a simulation of a math camp where kids will meet with each other, uh, will meet with mathematicians and people that are really excited about mathematics, uh, including engineers, maybe kind of NASA scientists. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll get those experiences online uh, that George received um, in his physical math camp. So that was the idea and we... Uh, we framed this idea in a kind of little write-up and decided to take it to a friend of ours, Ernie Cockrell, whom you all, by the way, mentioned, uh, uh, whom we've known from some of the joint work in the petroleum uh, industry. Uh, Ernie was also uh, very well known at that time and still is extremely well known in Houston and uh, in Texas and outside of the state as well uh, as a generous philanthropist that really cares about uh, about uh, major social causes, uh, and education is one of uh, those. So we decided to take him, this idea to him and, and see if this is something that he believes would be of interest uh, to, uh, uh, to him and, and maybe to others. From the very beginning, we thought about this as some kind of a, a garage type of weekend uh, fun activity that we'll do as a non-profit, uh, and that will be fun for us, and hopefully we'll help kids like George. So that was, that was the beginning of Reasoning Mind. All right. Well, I feel like a very uh, unnecessary host today because I just want to keep hearing the next step. So keep going. Okay. So we took it to Ernie, 
Uh, and uh, Ernie is not somebody who could easily sell an idea to. Uh, he's a very kind of savvy business person and uh, a savvy philanthropist as well. So he, uh, he queried us, he, he gave us homework to do. Uh, he wanted really to understand what is that we're trying to achieve. He sent us to meet and talk with some other people uh, whose uh, opinion he, uh, he valued. So uh, um, long story short, it, it took us pretty much a year full year, and that was back in 99, full year uh, to help Ernie better understand what we're trying to do and to complete his due diligence uh, uh, of our idea. And throughout this process, the idea actually morphed. It was no longer just limited to a summer camp uh, for kids like George. Uh, and the reason being that, uh, that Ernie very quickly in the conversation uh, told us that Regardless of how exciting uh, the idea of helping kids like George might be, uh, George will be fine. He will graduate from a very good school. He'll be admitted to a good college. Uh, so, yes, we could help more kids like George, but uh, there's a much bigger problem that we have in this country and in the state of Texas as well, which is helping uh, kids that are not privileged like George is, don't have parents, educated parents uh, like, uh, like uh, George's parents, uh, and uh, that are doing much worse uh, in mathematics and in their kind of STEM discipline studies at schools. Uh, and these are disadvantaged kids from primarily low-income communities that need a whole lot more help than George. And if our ideas would be applicable, Ernie said, to these kind of kids, then he, as a philanthropist, will be quite interested uh, in, in seeing if this could work. And he believes that there will be a lot of other philanthropists um, and foundations uh, in Houston and in Texas that might develop interest in this. So that's how the idea morphed into something that Reasoning Mind currently is about. Uh, um, and we didn't really abandon the idea of a math camp. We thought that that's something that we might include uh, in our... Uh, in our developments, in, in what we're going to build later on. But one of the common things, uh, common threads still remained, uh, which is the whole ways on how we wanted to engage those kids with a math camp. Uh, it turned out that they'll be applicable to a whole wide spectrum of kids, uh, from very, very high-achieving kids, uh, more or less gifted and talented kids like George, uh, to very low-achieving, weaker students that, uh, that didn't learn math uh, initially well in their, in their school and that need a lot of help. Uh, and the reason why it would be applicable to the entire spectrum and both of those extremes would be that we wanted to build from the very beginning in the system this artificial intelligence engine that I mentioned before that will understand where the student is in their learning, whether the student is advanced or the student is on the weak side uh, and will adjust the level of teaching uh, and getting the student interested in mathematics to the level where that particular student is. So we thought let's do something for disadvantaged kids. This is a noble cause that will be very interesting and challenging problem to solve. Uh, but whatever we're going to build in terms of the software system, it will be usable with a, with a higher and so to say, of, of student body with those that are achieving at higher levels as well. And we could really cover significantly wider audience of students than we initially intended. Uh, and that's uh, what we decided to do. That's what uh, earned Ernie's support uh, and many other philanthropists. And we started developing curriculum materials uh, to run our first pilot project in 2002.
Okay, so one question about how at this stage you were thinking of the artificial intelligence engine. You mentioned that you, you can gauge someone's level of development and then customize accordingly. And I think this relates to an issue you raised before about what it means to really know math and that, that it's, it's a much deeper thing than simply the ability to perform operations. So I, I imagine that informed your idea of how to gauge someone's level and, and the sequence through which to put them because if, if you were just trying to teach them rote operations that would be different than the deeper view. So how did, how did this stand in your mind at that, that time? Uh, sure. At that time, uh, what was really, it was probably a lucky coincidence uh, that uh, by the time uh, the idea of doing something in mathematics education came to my mind, uh, I already had some experience with artificial intelligence. Uh, actually, I was working uh, on some of the uh, problems of artificial intelligence as a science, uh, and I also used methods of artificial intelligence to solve some petroleum exploration and production problems. So I knew I knew the technology, I knew the methods. Um, and uh, one of the branches of artificial intelligence uh, is so-called expert systems. Expert systems is, um, is uh, a branch of artificial intelligence that targets developing computer models uh, for experts in various fields. Uh, so uh, imagine, for example, that, uh, that there is a doctor, a physician, uh, that knows uh, how to skillfully diagnose uh, the condition of a patient. Um, uh, so can you build a computer system that will uh, act in some way similar uh, when setting diagnosis uh, to how this physician works? Can we build a computer system that will simulate in some way his ways of, uh, of reasoning, of thinking about a patient and patient symptoms uh, a similar thing uh, is about a geologist, for example. Uh, if, uh, if you look at how geologists are analyzing data and determining what will be the best prospects for, uh, for, for drilling a wildcat, uh, uh, well, or something of the kind, they use a lot of uh, uh, knowledge uh, that is usually characterizing a true expert in a particular field. And education is not an exception. So I thought that can we build uh, a computer-based expert system uh, that will have many of the elements of the thinking uh, of a very good teacher uh, that uses a very good curriculum when teaching students mathematics. And from the very beginning, I knew that we certainly will not be able to replicate fully uh, the level of knowledge and expertise of any teacher, but we could do quite a bit of it and leave the remaining part to a very skillful teachers that, that, uh, that work with students uh, in, uh, in American classrooms. So, so the idea was let's take something that's already proven to work, something that's been used uh, with generations of students uh, in, uh, in other countries than the United States, uh, where uh, students achieve a higher level in the uh, mathematics learning, and let's try and build a system that will embody uh, uh, some of the uh, valuable knowledge of how to do that uh, in this artificial intelligence engine uh, and use it uh, to scale the delivery of this expert uh, teacher knowledge uh, to as many kids uh, and students in this country as possible. So you mentioned a, a proven superior approach 
uh, that's used in other countries with much more success than what's typically used in the U.S. Is there a particular name for the curriculum or the approach that you invoked? Uh, there is a name, but uh, there, there are a number of countries uh, that that built a tradition of excellence in mathematics education. One of them is Singapore, probably quite well known in the United States. Singapore Math uh, is a very recognizable uh, uh, and, and wonderful brand in K-12 mathematics. The Chinese system is a very good system of teaching mathematics as well as Japanese one. Uh, since I was born and raised in the former Soviet Union, uh, I was exposed and I'm a product of, uh, of the Russian system of teaching mathematics. And interestingly enough, once I started looking into this, I discovered that this system is very powerful and has a tradition of excellence uh, that, that started back uh, in the middle of the previous century, somewhere in the 40s or 50s uh, of the 20th century. And this tradition perfected over many, many generations of teachers and students through a lot of field studies, uh, through a lot of experimentation. And it, uh, and it resulted uh, in in a lot of not only textbooks and high quality instructional materials but a lot of kind of teaching knowledge that was passed from one generation of teachers to the next generation of teachers on how to use this uh, these instructional materials and adjust to the level of students and how to help students overcome their uh, of lack of understanding of certain concepts or help them uh, help them uh, understand things that they're struggling with so that's the body of knowledge uh, that uh, uh, I knew from my early childhood because I was a product, as I mentioned, of that system. And certainly I knew, knew it only from the customer perspective. I was a student there, I wasn't a teacher. But that gave me enough uh, outside-the-box vision uh, to understand how powerful that tradition and that system is and uh, that it will be really valuable to build some kind of a model of this system, computer-based model, and bring it to American students so that we could scale it uh, to a whole lot more students than just one teacher can do in their class. Got it. Well, I want to ask about starting in 2002, but I realize I haven't asked. You mentioned that you came over uh, 25 years ago. What made you come to the United States? Um, shortly, the appeal of opportunities that would be available uh, to me and my family. Uh, uh, America is known as the land of opportunities uh, and something that in the former Soviet Union uh, uh, I had very limited access to. Uh, to give you an example, uh, I was a scientist. I worked in the, uh, one of the leading uh, research institutes uh, uh, of, of computer science in Moscow. Uh, and I was working in the area of artificial intelligence, and I produced some interesting research results, uh, which I wanted to present at some conferences. Uh, and it was just not doable. Uh, so I could submit my paper, the paper would be accepted, but there were no funds, uh, or there are some other obstacles that would not allow me to travel and present uh, this paper and become part of the community, research community, uh, that is very important to be a part of if you are a researcher. So, uh, so that's that was one of the one of the major I think impulses for me. Uh, I wanted an opportunity to be able to do what I want to do to realize my potential. Uh, and America seemed to be uh, such a wonderful place uh, where this could be achieved 
versus the country where I came from. Got it. Okay, let's go back on the timeline. So in in two that let's let's go back to two thousand two. So in 2002, uh, with Ernie's help, we raised uh, initial funds uh, to develop a prototype of the system. Uh, from the very beginning, it was structured not just a kind of non-profit organization that will gather money, uh, raise funds, and will do all kind of wonderful things. It was structured like a philanthropic venture, which means that we wanted to uh, do first very, very small uh, contained pilot project uh, which will not require lots of money uh, and we'll see if what we're going to build uh, will work with students. If it'll work then we'll go to the next step and we'll expand the program and we'll continue kind of building uh, on, on the earlier success and we'll attract and put into this project more funds only if our previous steps would Proven uh, would prove that uh, that our approach is working and uh, uh, is is promising. Uh, so actually, like any startup company uh, in any uh, IT business that was structured similar to that way, um, uh, the only difference was that initial funds uh, came not from VCs but from philanthropists. Uh, but in essence, it was structured in a very similar way. So uh, back to 2002, we raised initial funds. Uh, hired few software developers, and the funds were very limited. If I remember correctly, we raised somewhere about um, probably maybe $150,000 or maybe $200,000. Uh, and, uh, and that allowed us to open a software account development shop in Moscow. Uh, and the reason why we've done that was because of the cost. We were able to uh, hire software developers, qualified software developers there for about 15-20% of the cost of that what that would have taken us to do in the United States. So we hired five, uh, five or six software developers, opened a very small office there. We built the initial prototype of the system. It took us the entire 2002, about 12 months, uh, to build it. Uh, and uh, we created uh, 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 some curriculum, mathematics curriculum uh, for seventh graders uh, on ratios and proportions, uh, how to teach kids ratios and proportions. Uh, and uh, we're ready by January 2003 to pilot it in a couple of schools. Uh, uh, by the way, by that time, until, until the end of 2002, both Julia and myself and George, our son, by the way, which I mentioned before, uh, who also got really interested in the project. Uh, he was at school at that time. He was still finishing up his, his, his high school, but he developed sufficient interest to begin helping uh, Julia and myself uh, and, uh, and was very, very important to the project from the very beginning. So we built that prototype. Uh, and uh, uh, we had our daytime jobs, so it was really kind of mom-pop garage type of, uh, of a project. Uh, and we're ready to start kind of piloting it at schools. Uh, so the first pilot occurred in the spring semester of 2003 in two schools, one in Houston, uh, Hogg Middle School, and another in College Station, uh, Cypress Grove uh, Elementary School with sixth graders. Uh, and um, by that time, we all the figured out that if we really want to make this happen, we really need to give this project more time uh, than just evenings and Saturdays and Sundays. And in particular, once the program went at the schools, we really have to be uh, in a classroom 
seeing how students are working with the system, uh, how they are responding to the system, what works, what doesn't work. That requires us to, to do something else during the daytime than continuing our daytime jobs. And we decided to quit our daytime jobs. Uh, our Board of Trustees supported us uh, very energetically on that. Uh, and uh, we switched full-time uh, with Julia, my wife, uh, to Reasoning Mind as full-time employees. Uh, and that first project uh, was, uh, was very successful. Uh, uh, we, from the very beginning, had an independent review of the results. Uh, we attracted uh, to, to the project a very high-profile, uh, distinguished professor uh, of University of Houston, uh, Dr. Will Weber, who was very well known uh, for his work in doing efficacy studies in researching effectiveness of educational programs. Uh, and uh, Will came on board as an independent evaluator of the program. He looked at the data, he visited a classroom, and he produced a report at the end of 2003 uh, project, uh, sometime summertime, once the school year was finished. And once he'd done his statistical analysis and compared the growth of students um, that went through the Reasoning Mind program for just one semester from January through May, uh, with the growth of students uh, in the control group from the same uh, school, um, uh, he was pretty much blown away by how much more Reasoning Mind students grew in their mathematics uh, achievement in comparison to non-Reasoning Mind students. And that was a huge success. Uh, we all celebrated. The board was very, very happy. Uh, and the board said that, well, let's go on to the next step. I think we are ready to raise funds uh, to take this to a larger scale. So just just to go back to the theme of of different different ideas about what it means to know mathematics, what was the standard by which, or what were the metrics by which the mathematics knowledge was was measured, and how how much do those correspond to what you think is most important uh, to measure in testing whether someone knows mathematics? Uh, well, we used a couple of instruments to measure in that particular uh, project students' uh, learning of mathematics. Um, uh, of course, we had to use a standardized assessment. Uh, at that time, uh, it was STAR test. That was actually the first year when uh, here in Texas, um, uh, here in Texas, schools started using the new test. Uh, but that test was kind of, uh, somewhat more formulaic. It was uh, it was checking kind of conceptual knowledge as well, but it was uh, it, it offered kind of problems of more or less the same difficulty level uh, that uh, students reaching some basic level of manipulating with numbers and knowing rules of uh, doing mathematical operations with decimals, common fractions, and whole numbers uh, uh, would be able to do well on that test. Uh, in addition to that test, we created our own instrument, which would be much more sophisticated. Uh, it uh, included the variety of problems of various difficulty levels. And uh, uh, to solve difficult problems, that's where your true understanding of mathematical concepts is usually revealed. Uh, and we had uh, three difficulty levels, A, B, and C, where A was the basic level and C was the most difficult level. Uh, and we looked at how well the students uh, are doing in solving level A problems, level B problems, and level C problems. So to us, the most indicative thing was 
how students are solving most complex problems, which is uh, count the level B and C. Because as I just mentioned, uh, uh, students to solve these problems had to kind of demonstrate the mastery of, uh, of mathematical concepts rather than being able to do a one-step or two-step simple mathematics operations. And it was very interesting to see that specifically on this type of problems, students that went through the reasoning mind system outperformed non-reasoning mind students by a much larger margin than uh, on, uh, let's say, kind of solving A-level problems. Is there any way to give over the phone an example of one of these problems? Um, from the top of my head, it's probably, it's probably going back to 2003 is a little difficult now in 2000. Well, I don't mean the exact one. I just mean the, the level of, of difficulty. Uh, the level of difficulty. Uh, let me think. Let me think. So you want a particular problem, right? Yeah, just so I can think about how hard would that be to solve, and so other people can. Uh, uh, let me give you not a problem from the test. Uh, uh, because I don't remember which problems we put in there. But just to illustrate kind of the level of uh, non-standard thinking that might be required to solve these kind of a problems, uh, I'll give you a, an, an example of a problem which will probably illustrate the idea. Perfect. Uh, suppose you have uh, eight coins, uh, and uh, you know that uh, that uh, one of those coins uh, is uh, uh, is a forgery. It really is not a coin. It's uh, it's it's not money. Uh, and all you know is that uh, that coin uh, weighs uh, differently from other seven coins. Uh, and actually, you know that that coin is a little heavier than normal regular coins. So uh, you have a scale uh, kind of with, uh, uh, with the kind of a hanging scale where you, don't, you can't see, you can't read how much a certain thing weighs, but you can just tell uh, uh, putting on both, uh, both platforms of those uh, scale which side is heavy and which one is, is lighter. So that's the only thing that you can do. You can just determine weigh in your coins in any quantities uh, on the scale, uh, and you could uh, see uh, which side overweights another side. And suppose that you're allowed to do only two weighing in of your coins. So you have eight coins. You can put any number and any of them on one count side of the scale and any number on the other one uh, any ways you want, but you can do it only twice. You need to find the coin that's not that's not a regular coin. That's 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 a forgery coin. Yes, that's difficult because the obvious use case is you know if you get three, it's pretty straightforward. You just break it up three times. Um, I feel like I've solved this before, but yeah, it's not not obvious. Certainly not sort of to do mentally in in my head. So what's the answer? Uh, well, the, uh, the, the answer is, uh, is this. So you divide your eight coins into three groups, three, three, and two. Okay? 
So the first thing you do, uh, you put three coins on one side of a scale and three on the other. Okay? Uh, you, if they're equal, that means that they're all good coins, right? Right. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see how it goes. Yeah, that's okay. good. So then you take the, sec the, the, the remaining two coins and uh, whichever is, is heavier is your coin. With the, uh, imagine that one of these three groups of these three coins awaits another one. Then you take two of those coins and again you put them on the scale, any two. Okay? Uh, if your count forgery coin is one of those, uh, uh, then you'll find it. If they're equal, then the remaining third one is, is, is your coin. So that's, that's how you do it. You really have to demonstrate a logical thinking and in a non-standard way and break, break your problem apart into, into some not immediately seen steps. Uh, it's, not, it's not running a particular procedure. You're just inventing the procedure on your own. Yeah, I mean, if you, can, if you can get people better at that, it's tremendous. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you'll do on intelligence tests, and often there's an idea that you can't really get better at that, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, you, you, you can if, uh, and I remember myself being a boy. When I first was presented with some kind of this type of problem, I had no idea. I really had no idea. But I was shown how to solve it. Uh, that triggered my thinking, and once I started seeing problems, uh, I wouldn't say kind of very similar to these ones, but requiring similar methods of decomposing the problem uh, into smaller steps, into smaller, simpler problems, uh, then I started to learn this technique. Uh, there's really no magic about it. It just kind of developing a plasticity of your mind, if you will. Uh, and, uh, and these kind of problems and this kind of thinking uh, uh, and problem solving can do that. And if you just think about the, the power of that, just anyone reflecting on the extent to which you have that of, of being able to look at, at problems or you know, whether it's you absolutely are told there's an answer or you, you suspect there's an answer and, and being on the premise that there are many non-initially obvious ways to proceed that just completely expands the horizons of the number of things that you'll you'll be try and the intelligence with which you'll explore them, and it's it's just a, I mean that's an amazing thing if you can if you can develop that in kids and many many people don't have that. One thing I notice is this annoys some people, but I I, I really enjoy mental math. Just doing you know just doing two or three digit multiplication problems in my head. And that's not quite as creative as this, but in some cases you do need to find, like if you're multiplying 24 times 25, you sort of need to think about, okay, what's going to be the easiest way to get that? And if you happen to know 25 times 25 and you understand multiplication, you can get there that way. Um, I always ask people 13 times 14 because it's just an interesting thing where you ha nobody has memorized that, but you can get to it pretty easily. And, and it's fascinating to see people think through it. And you can see that most people have not developed even that level of, of knowledge of how to proceed with this kind of thing and, and certainly have no confidence in that. And I, I imagine that has to transfer over to other realms. Right. And let me give you an, another example. This is, this is really kind of leads me to, to a very similar uh, example, but illustrating uh, the very essence of mathematics. Uh, one of the things that's very difficult and important to develop with kids is what is called number sense. So they'll understand what are the numbers, what is this construct, and, and how to work with numbers. And one of the important elements of that is the makeup of the number. 
understanding that actually number 10 is not just a number, it's made up of 4 and 6, or it's made up of 5 and 5, so 10 is 5 plus 5. And that you could easily, operating with numbers, you can break them apart and operate with their parts using the laws of mathematics, like distributive law, associative law, or, or things like that. Uh, it is very helpful for, uh, for mental math, as you mentioned. For example, uh, multiplying 101 by 101. So how would you do that? Uh, if you just kind of do it in your head with a column multiplication, that, that's a bit difficult. But if you just notice that uh, 101 is just 100 plus 1, and you multiply this time 101, it becomes much simpler. Right? You just multiply it's 101 times 100, and after that, add 101 to the result. So, uh, and that is not only helpful uh, just for practical purposes, but uh, this kind of a mental math uh, uh, helps kids develop better understanding and better sense for what really numbers are. Uh, uh, and that's cognitive ability. This is not just kind of operating with numbers. Uh, it has much more uh, kind of... Uh, much further reaching, uh, further reaching, I would say, implications for any other mental work uh, that uh, uh, these students will have to, de to do uh, in their lives. Uh, because uh, uh, what you learn through mathematics are some general principles and methods on how to operate not only with numbers, but operate with information, operate with data, uh, even uh, 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 qualitative data, not just quantitative data. Uh, and that's the whole purpose of, uh, of uh, teaching and learning mathematics. It's not to be able to just do mental math, which is certainly a fun thing to do, uh, but uh, uh, the most important thing is to develop those thinking skills and abilities that will serve you well in your life with almost any work that we'll have to do that requires certain kind of intellectual effort. Awesome. All right, so now we have the successful prototype uh, you're getting more interest, more funding. What what comes and, and you've you've tested it both by the independent tester standards and, and by your own standards, which I think are more important, and it's going really well. So what happens next? Well, next we, we raised more funds and we started kind of building the curriculum program and we started creating the software system that would not be just a sandbox which we used in two thousand three, but would be what we called a production-grade system. Something what, what do you mean a sandbox? Well, because what we built initially, uh, the software system, it was something that was not, uh, was not conducive to, uh, to having thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of students on it. Uh, we didn't have a luxury of from the very beginning to in a very short time frame that we had to build something that will have that kind of a durability uh, and scalability. Uh, it was sufficient to prove the concept but it was not sufficient to to properly allow to scale uh, to scale the program to to deliver our system to to uh, thousands and thousands of students. So for that, we had to to develop a new system. So so what I'm calling a sandbox. I don't know if I made this clear. Uh, was uh, developing a kind of a software system that will do from the from the student perspective and teacher perspective what we wanted to do, but its internal constructs will not allow it to grow uh, to significantly larger number of users very quickly. Does this make sense, Alex? Yes. Yes. Continue. Yeah. 
so, uh, so we used the following couple of years, which were the years of uh, uh, 2004 um, and half of 2005, uh, to develop this kind of a, what we call professional-grade uh, uh, software system. And we also created our first full-year curriculum. We built the curriculum uh, for, uh, for fifth-grade mathematics. And the reason why we started at fifth grade uh, was interesting too, because uh, we didn't know which grade would be count the best uh, to start. We looked at the research data that was available to us, and at that time what was published uh, demonstrated that in comparison to students in other countries, uh, American elementary uh, school uh, students are doing quite well. Uh, they are more or less on par uh, with the students in high-achieving countries. But it's in the middle school and in the high school where the gap develops uh, and our students be begin falling behind students uh, in, in high-achieving in mathematics education countries. So we, we put this uh, as a basis uh, for our strategic, strategic planning and we decided why wouldn't we just catch students a little earlier than middle school, let's start with the last grade of elementary school, which is fifth grade, just to make sure that students uh, are well prepared for a very challenging curriculum that we're planning to give them beginning grade six. Uh, and after that, we'll just keep going up uh, and we'll then develop curricula for sixth grade, seventh grade to cover all the middle school and all the high school. Uh, and our students will be wonderfully prepared to go on to college, uh, uh, or do whatever they wanted with their lives. So that was initial plan. So we put this, we developed this field grade curriculum, we put this uh, in, in schools, uh, and two things happened. Uh, first of all, all of a sudden we realized that if we just develop something and give it to schools and don't help schools learn how to, how to integrate uh, this curriculum and this new way of teaching into their traditional instructional practices, it's probably not going to deliver any results because, because it's a very different way of teaching. Uh, teachers need help in learning how to do it. Uh, they need help not only with what's happening in the classroom, but also in planning around traditional instruction, making sure that the, the instruction is properly balanced, that they can address all the, uh, all, the, uh, all, the, all the targets and the goals of, of the instruction that kind of the, the school district and the state imposes on them. Uh, so there are a lot of constraints under which schools operate. And to help them figure out out how to uh, work into those constraints, a very different way of teaching is not a very straightforward problem to solve. So initially we didn't know that. So we just gave the system to schools and we told them, oh, by the way, use it. So here's, here's how to use it. So here's a little manual. Uh, it's pretty much straightforward. So all the curriculum is there. Here are the reports for teachers. And here's how to use those reports. Go ahead and do it. Uh, and uh, we, we came back a year later, academic year later, uh, in, in spring to schools to, to find out what was going on. Uh, and we discovered that uh, our system was uh, either misused or not used. That was a pretty disappointing experience. We had no idea at that time why, uh, 
Uh, we just thought that, well, they, they signed up for it, so they probably would be interested in doing it. No one forced them to do it. There was really no charge. We didn't sell anything to them. At that time, it was all free of charge to schools. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that didn't happen. They did not use it. Later on, we figured out that this is what's happening with, I think, almost every software uh, that uh, that will be kind of deployed at schools. If it is not properly supported, if teachers do not receive proper training and more or less continuous support through a school year, especially the first year when uh, they're expected to do something new, uh, it's most likely it's not going to work. So, uh, but again, at that time, we had no idea that that's the case. So we've been pretty disappointed we're disappointed with the lack of results and with the lack of use of something that we put our hearts and minds into. Uh, so what would we do? Uh, so we decided, after giving it some thought, and Will Weber, by the way, uh, helped us uh, there again. He's done uh, his second report, independent evaluation, and he helped us come to a conclusion that this is because we didn't provide sufficient support to schools. That's why the program was not used or misused. Uh, at that time, with his help um, and putting our heads together, we decided that moving forward, uh, we're going to do it differently. We're going to create what we call the implementation department at Reasoning Mind, which is a department that will have its sole function uh, to make sure that our program is implemented uh, correctly at schools. We call it implementing with fidelity, as intended. Uh, and we started kind of bringing people into that department, and those people uh, were assigned to schools for the next school year to work very closely with teachers, doing professional development, being available to them to answer any questions they might have, uh, pretty much being their support line and support system uh, for the use of our system. Uh, and that uh, changed things to the better dramatically. A year later, we've seen much, much better results. First of all, throughout the year, we've been able to monitor the program because we had eyes and ears in schools. We've been there working with teachers uh, and actually addressing their concerns. So we knew when things were not going well, and we also knew when things were going well. Uh, so uh, that really allowed us to uh, develop much better insights uh, into how schools operate, uh, where the most difficulties lie, how to help teachers overcome those difficulties. So it was just a very, very intense and extremely valuable learning experience that we went through as an organization. Uh, and that compares sharply with our initial stance, which was somewhat arrogant, I would say. Hey, we developed something that we believe schools uh, are going to use, will help their kids, so we're going to throwing it over the fence to schools and uh, believe that our uh, our, our work is finished. Uh, no, not yet, as we discovered. It really requires a whole lot more work to make sure that your product is, is properly used and, uh, and, and are benefiting students. So that was really the new new era, I would say, in, in the history of Reasoning Mind with an invention uh, of, the, of the implementation department. And interestingly enough, jumping, uh, jumping kind of fast forward uh, to 2015, uh, uh, this department now is the largest in our organization. We have probably about 50 people working uh, in the implementation department. Stephen Gaudino, our vice president of program, uh, has built this department uh, pretty much from scratch uh, and is running it very, uh, very effectively. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, uh, we might be one of the few, if not the only company, that puts that much emphasis uh, on the implementation and on working very much hand-in-hand -hand with schools uh, in learning and in helping them master the use of, of our program. Uh, to the extent that one of the premier research organizations, SRI International, that's currently is doing a research study uh, of the efficacy of our program, uh, recently made a comment that uh, they're getting more and more intrigued uh, with our implementation model uh, with how do we achieve good results uh, with schools because they have not seen anything of the kind uh, in other schools and they believe that that might be uh, that might be the answer to uh, to getting technology products uh, actually being effective uh, in schools. You might have heard, Alex, that there's a lot of uh, ad tech products right now. A lot of them are going into schools uh, and there's some good stuff that's happening. But implementation support, uh, for the most part, is not, is not part of, uh, of the initial design of these programs. Uh, and I'm a little concerned that a lot of good effort put into ad tech uh, might run into the same problems that we ran into early on, uh, which led us to develop and put in place the implementation uh, department. So SRI is very interested in that, so they want to write a research paper and they want to present it at some conferences, uh, from what I understand. So they're intrigued to the extent that they believe this might really be uh, something of uh, significance and, uh, and uh, significant value that we discovered uh, quite some time ago, that was in 2005 and 2006, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, that would kind of allow for good programs uh, to, to deliver good results at schools. So having seen Reasoning Mind in action, my suspicion is that people might be overrating the implementation part, not, not its usefulness to you, which I think is, is essential, and I, I have no reason to dispute you, but I just want to highlight that if you look at this thing, it's remarkable how good the program is, how good the AI is, how good the sequence of things is. I, it's hard to imagine that many, if any, of these other programs are anywhere near on that level of being thought out. And I think ultimately it's the content and the methodology that's distinguishing it. So I think it's a really good insight that even with the right content and methodology, you can't just leave it to the computer um, but I think that in many cases, people aren't rethinking methodology enough, and methodology is ultimately the, the you know, it's, it's just completely essential. And if someone says, I'm going to teach something a lot better, and I'm just going to do, I'm going to do it using a computer, the computer isn't essential. The computer is a scaling tool. It's not, it's not the essence of, of the innovation. So I'm curious what you think about that. Um, it's... It's change management, Alex. That's what I think. And change management uh, is not easy with anything you're trying to change. And what we're bringing into schools is a dramatic change. So I think that's why, um, that's why implementation is such a big piece. I don't know if I'm answering your question, uh, but uh, yeah, no, if that, you could... That, that helps. No, that, that helps. I, mean, I, I would say that my inclination, having seen it in action, is to underrate the implementation part, probably because it's done well, so it's invisible to me. 
you know, the, the things that could go wrong. Uh, but I still think that the, the, when, when I hear someone say of reasoning mind, you know, the, the implementation thing is what they notice. Yeah, I can see that, but I think they should really notice the curriculum and the, the software and how much thought and care has gone into that. Because that, that right. is to me what's most remarkable. Yeah, actually, I would I would phrase it a little differently. So uh, you probably will not see implementation because when you come to a classroom, all you see is uh, is students and teacher, right, working there. So you don't see our uh, our implementation coordinators that usually show up kind of uh, at different time slots and working with teachers, uh, not when visitors are there. Uh, quite often outside of of the uh, class time. Uh, just one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so uh, I, I would say that the curriculum and the artificial intelligence is an absolutely uh, necessary component. Without that, nothing would have happened. Uh, it's, it's really the heart of the system. Uh, but without implementation, uh, uh, that, that value really cannot be, uh, cannot be realized. That's that's in our experience, at least in the majority of schools, because it's not an easy change. But it's not something that really kind of meets your eyes uh, uh, at, at, at the first glance uh, at it. And maybe that's why a lot of organizations do not see this and the importance of the implementation uh, as we've seen it early on in our program. Given that we're talking about what reasoning mind looks like and how it, how it works, uh, where is the best place, if any, online for people to get a sense of what it what it looks like? Uh, our website, uh, which is www.reasoningmind, please know that there is no S at the end, just a single reasoningmind.org. Um, uh, so there's some uh, good demo materials there on our website. Uh, actually, uh, anyone can take a guided tour uh, and... Uh, uh, and go through our website guided by uh, by certain prompts uh, uh, showing how things work and uh, uh, and it's it's a it's a fun tour because we we made it somewhat playful uh, there's certain things uh, secretly hidden hidden along the way uh, on, on the tour so somebody who explores reasoning mind would have some fun uh, finding uh, those hidden things uh, along the way so I encourage uh, everyone who would be interested in our program uh, to explore it that way. Got it. Okay, so I think this is a good place to bracket off our first our first discussion. So we have the history of reasoning mind, I think the essence of reasoning mind, the results, at least we've gotten and some of the results it started to get. And then next time I want to focus on, among other things, what have been some of the obstacles? Because one of the, the logical questions that might arise in people's minds is, well, if this is so good, how come it's not everywhere? This is not something that was developed yesterday. It's been in the works for 15 or so years. And, and I think understanding that will illuminate a lot about the nature of our educational system and things that, that need to change. So, uh, Alex, thanks for coming on this time. And I look forward to having you on uh, very soon to discuss part two. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. Thanks again to Alex for being on the program. As I mentioned, we're going to do another program next week on the challenges that Reasoning Mind has faced and, and what we can learn 
uh, from those and, and maybe what some people can do to help them overcome those challenges. Uh, but for now, I'll go through the usual stuff. There's lots of, lots of news. Uh, make sure that you're subscribed to the newsletter, which you can get at industrialprogress.com. Make sure to keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein, and twitter.com slash I love fossil fuel, as well as the, the I love nuclear pages, which have the same uh, slash I love nuclear as the Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, Lots of different developments. I've been speaking a lot lately, which is, is part of the reason it's, it's hard to do much else. If this week, uh, as I'm speaking this, I just did two speeches. Sometimes, some weeks I'm doing three speeches. Uh, but it's, it's all good news because it's, it, it means that there are motivated audiences who are interested in these ideas, and, and I think in many cases interesting in, interested in acting on them and in spreading them. So uh, I think we're already seeing... Uh, you know, lots of cool developments. I was on Glenn Beck recently. We'll be we'll be uh, sending the link to that in the newsletter that was posted all over Facebook and Twitter. I think that was a one of my favorite appearances uh, I've ever done. Uh, there's an upcoming John Stossel documentary on the Green Movement that I think that I did some taping for. Hopefully, I'll be in that. So, uh, lots of stuff on the horizon. Best best thing to do is get on the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. All right, we will talk to you next week. I promise. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Oh yeah, I forgot my usual. See, it's been so long. Uh, if you have questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.